The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Thank you, Herr Spirit. That'll be all. What about him? He's my bodyguard. He stays. Is your employer aware that our services are very costly? Price is no object. And you'll be acting as his intermediary? And delivery person. What kind of girl does he want? He doesn't want a girl. Oh, well, then perhaps you should contact the Levin brothers. They deal in the chicken trade. He wants a woman. Ah, a classic woman. With high cheekbones and a regal carriage. Into humiliation and domination. That's none of your concern. Nor mine, for that matter. Can we do business? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 9th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. On the heels of last week's show, on which we discussed the subject of sex and the male-female relationship, our next focus on the issue of sex turns out to be one we were avoiding for the most part last week, the politicization of sex and the destructive force of feminism on the left. But that we'll get to shortly. Robert, I know you're going to be changing the topic rather radically for the second half of the show. Is that right? Well, I wonder, you know, because almost everything we do on this show has to do with the individual versus the collective. And I'm going to be tackling a, an interesting exchange between uh, Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute and Paul McKeever of the Freedom Party over immigration and how and what conditions should be required to deny people the so-called right to immigrate to the United States particularly. Before we begin, don't forget you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Robert, I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with this phrase? Quote, Women have no choice in their lives, and they make a decision to do prostitution, end quote. <laughs> well, first of all, you said quote, and it should be quotation. But I'm just being a grammar Nazi. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. What's wrong with that phrase, Bob? You tell me. Well, it's a contradiction, plain and simple. You can't say you have no choice, and then you make a choice. <laughs> yeah, And, and you decide. I mean, you can't say no choice, and you say, oh, I made, made a decision to do this. That is a choice. Say it again. Women have no choice in their lives, and they make a decision to do prostitution. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, there's a reason for it, and I'm hoping to get to So that. women have no choice in their lives. Well, how about them making a decision not to get into prostitution? <laughs> Who said that? Well, that was Megan Walker. And it was, oh, of course. And it was said in reaction to London's fourth homicide of the year and the public discussion that has ensued. Since that homicide, it's been more about the politics of feminism than it has been about solving the crime or finding solutions to the problems that Walker keeps raising. Now, just to enlighten our listeners on what has happened in the city recently that has prompted this whole discussion, at the end of August, a young lady by the name of Josie Glenn, who worked at a local massage parlor under the name of Sabrina, was found murdered at a private home 
in the Summerside subdivision of London five days after being reported missing. Now, according to Our London, the newspaper on November 2nd, quote, a 25-year-old London man has been charged with second-degree murder and offering an indignity to a body after London police received information that led them to the remains of the victim. A publication ban has been issued on all evidence associated with this case. So we don't know what the details are. We just know this has happened. Now, two days earlier, on October 31st, the London Free Press ran a headline that read, Sex Worker Slaying Probe Drains Pond for Clues. And, of course, it's referring to a stormwater storage pond near Cudmore Crescent, where police are obviously looking for more of that evidence on which there is a publication ban. And to quote from that paper, Glenn's death shocked the close-knit community of sex workers who are members of a grassroots collective called Safe Space London. And they are quoted as saying, The community of Safe Space Space is grieving the loss of a friend and community member, the group said in a statement. This is raw for us and we are devastated by the loss. Sex work isn't what harmed Josie, it was society and laws and bylaws that make it less safe and less open to do this work. Many factors contribute to violence against sex workers, Safe Space said. A predator is a predator and will go for those they have seen society cast aside and dehumanize. Respecting the human rights of sex workers starts with considering sex workers to be human beings, regardless of external factors, including what they do to earn money. The sex work community is grieving. Efforts to speak for or delegitimize sex work continuously puts workers in danger. This is about life and death, and not an agenda, Safe Space said. End quote. Now, the main target of their criticisms, ironically, happens to be a hardcore feminist, Marxist feminist group, I should say, led by Megan Walker, executive director of the London Abused Women's Centre. Which, by the way, if we have to reiterate, the center's main goal is the dissemination of feminist philosophy. It says so right on the webpage, unless yep. they've done it, yep. taken it down since. Sort of like a union, you know, where unions uh, are mostly political bodies that happen to do a little collective bargaining on the side. This is a feminist lobby that happens to do a little bit of uh, women's counseling on the side. Yes, it is. Now, of course, longtime listeners to this show and even longer-time followers of my personal political debates will know that Megan Walker and I have been bitter foes on the issue of sexuality, feminism, and socialism in general. I should also add, Robert, that it was Megan Walker and her local campaign against comedian Bill Cosby. Remember that when he was in town on his comedy tour? I do. A few years ago that inspired, well, I shouldn't say inspired me. It was a straw that broke the camel's (laughs) back, okay, that, that forced me to spend 120 hours of my time looking into the whole case of what was then around 35 women accusing Cosby of sexual improprieties. Hashtag me too, me too. (laughs) What I found was shocking, to put it mildly, as disturbing facts about Cosby's accusers. And of course, we shared many hours of our findings over several past broadcasts on this show. So when Megan Walker insisted that all of the women, Cosby's accusers, had to be believed, because of course women never lie about these situations, I knew there was mischief afoot. Now, it's not my intention today to discuss this particular case at hand, but to readdress the constant Marxist ideology that drives feminists of the left. In stark contrast, and you heard it here first, feminist, if not on the right, very much in the right. Coming up next are some excerpts edited from an Andrew Lawton interview with Megan Walker that took place on October 31st, the same day of the London Free Press newspaper article I cited the excerpts being 
among those that I wish to address most directly when we return. There are others. We'll provide a bonus link to the unedited version, along with our online post of this show. Now, their conversation was, of course, precipitated by that front-page story on the murder of Josie Glenn. Well, I would say, first and foremost, it was a man that harmed um, this individual, apparently, who's been charged. Um, And in the majority of cases, it's men who are harming women in prostitution and trafficking. And I would say that comes from a place of women's oppression and from men believing that they have a right to access women's bodies and do whatever they like to them, whether it's rape scenes, which they often are paying to do, or torture scenes or other scenes. Um, And so when we allow prostitution to exist in societies, we see that women are treated as less than. And in our world, in the world of the London Abuse Women's Centre and other abolitionists across this country, we believe that no woman is safe until all women are safe. And so we would like to see an end to prostitution because it's really based on extreme forms of violence. To your question around body rub parlors and um, prostitution, they are one in the same. And actually, based on the definition in the criminal code around prostitution, uh, a definition of sexual services, that's exactly what's happening, is that men are paying to have basically their porn and fetish-fueled fantasies uh, fulfilled by women. I think people think of prostitution in terms of consensual sex. What prostitution is today is pretty body debasing. It's based on um, what people are learning in pornography, torture porn, fetish porn, knife play and beating women. And um, all of these things have really been normalized in prostitution. So the expectations many men have is to go and sometimes they have wives or partners at home, but Uh, they will say, well, I respect my wife too much to ask for this, so I'll go by the services of a a whore, they'll sometimes call them and say, um, you know, and then they'll do anything they want. But oftentimes these women say, you know, they do love their partners, their husbands, and he's a father to their children, and they'd like to stay with him. And so they start performing in a way that is demeaning to them uh, to please and satisfy him. And Ultimately, they're very traumatized by even doing that with somebody they love. So can you imagine doing with that something like that with somebody that's a complete stranger? Prostitution is inherently violent, and if it weren't violent, people wouldn't be talking about keeping it safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's violence, and it's male violence against women largely, and largely it's the most vulnerable in our society that are targeted. And in fact, we know that 50% of women and girls who are trafficked and exploited into prostitution are indigenous. And I think that speaks Mm. volumes about who is actually being targeted. You and your organization, London Abuse Women's Centre, were instrumental under the previous government's revamping of Canada's prostitution laws. When we look at where we are today, clearly the problem still exists. Clearly it's happening. Is this a case where the laws didn't go far enough or the laws as amended aren't really being in practice enforced? I think the laws are very good. I think what's happened is that they've only been passed uh, in December of 2014. And we knew that this strategy was about changing the culture for future Mm -hmm. generations and not necessarily impacting where people are today. 
enforcement in some municipalities across the country has been difficult. Police officers are still remaining in that place of, you know, well, prostitution's a choice, and they're not going after the Johns. You know, I read an article last night in Toronto Life about a woman. She was not named in the piece, but she was a body rub parlor worker. And the one that you hear about in the Hollywood version of it, I mean, she had the master's degree, she was making $100,000 a year, she was great at her job and and saw it as a career path. How do you separate those stories from someone that says this is empowering from someone else that you were just describing earlier is coming at it from a place of vulnerability, a place of oppression? We don't take a position of any individual's personal empowerment in society. What we look at is what is best collectively. So we have to ask ourselves, if there is a woman of privilege who's in prostitution, does she reflect the best interests of all women in prostitution? And we would say, no, she doesn't. I've been most annoyed recently listening to women who have PhDs and other privileges in society coming forward and speaking on behalf of this issue, saying, but these women choose it. You know, it's very hard for many women to achieve a level of a PhD, and many women have dreams and aspirations that they will never achieve because of their backgrounds or their current circumstances, and they're not choosing to be empowered by prostitution. What they're doing is making a decision to survive because they have no other choices in their lives. Imagine a society where we made our decisions about what to support or not to support based on a few privileged people saying that it's something they enjoy. We just don't do that. We always look to those who suffer the most and try to make decisions that would best help them. And we don't listen to those who have never experienced prostitution, who have never been exploited. We listen to those who are going through this every single day. Well, Robert, any instant responses to what you just heard or any reactions? Well, of course, Megan and I go back many, many years uh, as with you, and I am always disgusted by pretty much the attitude Megan has towards society as a whole, if we can call society a thing. But, you know, Megan is surrounded by women who have had bad experiences Mm -hmm. with abuse and, and prostitution, I think it's coloring her viewpoint where the po- to the point where she's saying just because a few people are being beaten by their husbands or just because a few people are having bad experiences with prostitution, therefore, all men are rapists, therefore, there should be no prostitution. When she says, I don't listen to people, you know, if they haven't experienced prostitution or been sex workers, she doesn't listen to anybody who disagrees with her. Well, you know something, has she been a prostitute herself? Has she been to a prostitute? No, but consider... So what makes her an expert? By her own definition, she shouldn't even listen to herself. (laughs) Well, that's a good point. And But she's not listening to the sex workers who are prostitutes, who are working, and she's not listening to them. And here's the other issue. I just have to say this before we begin this conversation on prostitution, because this attitude that Megan is expressing toward this particular activity is not about the activity. It's about her whole attitude to sex and towards men. And in fact, whether in prostitution or especially in a family situation, remember the word domestic violence? That's what she was all about. And it was the same argument. It didn't matter. Women weren't safe in their homes. She said that prostitution is inherently violent. Well, let's just break down prostitution. What is it? It's sex for money. That's right. So what part of that, those two things in that equation is inherently violent? It, is it money? Is money inherently violent? Well, let's talk about That's that. It's a means of exchange. Is sex inherently violent? Well, you know something? To a degree, I think it may be. 
Well, violent, yeah, but not non-consensual. Non-consensual. Totally different That's thing. the difference, yeah. My point being, of course, is that what she's really opposed to is sex. Well, of course. Now, here we get back to the definition game that you said you were going to be talking about later, and maybe that's what this theme is about. And she talks about the definition of the criminal code where men are paying, I, I get, the, get this, to have their porn and fetish fuel fantasies fulfilled by women. Well, what's porn about? That's about sex. And the kind of sex she describes is really weird. And she says, this is interesting, I think people think of prostitution in terms of consensual sex. And really what prostitution is today is body debasing. Here's the change of definition. It's based on what people are learning in pornography, which is torture porn, fetish porn, things like knife play and eating women. What the hell is she talking about? All of these things have been normalized in prostitution, she says. She says all that after saying, Prostitution is not cons- consensual, but what's all, what have all, have all those things got to do with consent? Not a thing. And however disgusting or kinky you might regard these activities, as long as explicit physical force or direct threat thereof is absent, can't we agree that it's consensual? Because if you don't on that, what, what do you have left? There are no standards. Well, I think she said at the bat with that quote, off the bat with that quote that you said that uh, women have no choice. Well, they have a choice, but they can't make a decision, which means they have no choice which is somewhat uh, a bit of a mind puzzle. So she would say that, yes, um, with all prostitution, I think she's painting every single prostitute as a person who has no choice in doing what they're doing. Oh, yes, and, and it's key to her whole argument. And she's tossed out the most extreme examples of what constitutes most prostitution. But it's she who thinks these sex acts, which perhaps do exist in porn and prostitution, are what prostitution is based on. And she calls prostitution inherently violent. It's inherently physical. In the sense of non-consensual, that's what she's implying by that. And then even if the married men go home and their wives do with them what they're doing in this house of prostitution, that's bad news too. Even though the women who do it with them say they love their men. Well, whose problem is that? That's not society's problem. Are we supposed to stop these relationships? It's the most vulnerable in our society who are targeted, she says. 50% of women and girls who are trafficked and exploited into prostitution are indigenous. And I think that speaks volumes as to who is being targeted, she says. Targeted by whom? Well, that's a good question. By men, obviously. By men and pimps and and prostitution and pornography and all that stuff. Targeted by her, maybe? Well, and and her too, (laughs) you know. You know, the reason she calls it violent to imply that it's non-consensual is so she can dismiss the issue of consent. She doesn't want to get into that. But doesn't it speak yeah, volume? That, no, that's actually quite prophetic, Bob. If you had her in the room here, we say, you should ask her the question, can you ever think of one instance by one prostitute where she's actually doing a consensual act with a man who's actually doing the act consensually? Does that or can that happen? I think her answer is obviously no. Or there it, can never be a consensual prostitution. Or it's yes, with a condition that oh, that's a that's a minority, and therefore the collective must take over. Quite possible, you know. Mm-hmm. Remember, it was Megan Walker who accused me of racism for suggesting that maybe Indigenous people should have the same rights and status as the rest of Canadians. And she was outraged at the suggestion. It was her who insisted that Aboriginals must continue to live on reservations and primitive collective lifestyles. And yes, quote, that speaks volumes as to who is being targeted. And with regards to the murder case in London, Walker stresses, I thought this was funny, she starts it off, well, first and foremost, it was a man that harmed this individual. That's first and foremost? 
That's the first thing on your mind, that it was a man? What if it had been a woman? Wouldn't even care. I don't even think she'd be talking about this. In a majority of cases, it's men who are harming women, she says, in prostitution and trafficking, and that comes from a place of women's oppression. Where's that going on, Robert? It's women's oppression. Did you see it in the school board when you were there? <laughs> Most uh, teachers are women. Um, we've had a women prime minister. Uh, there are women CEOs. There are women in uh, virtually, well, actually all aspects of life, including construction, uh, paving highways, you name it. There's women there. There, uh, there is no systemic oppression of women in Canadian society, period. There you go. You know, and, and she says it stems from that and from men behaving like they have a right to access women's bodies and do whatever they like to them, whether it's rape scenes they're often paying to do or torture scenes or other scenes. End quote. Well, raping someone and then saying that in the same act you're paying them for the service is not exactly what I would call a rape. It's, a, it's another contradiction in terms. She, she counts on these contradictions to state a case that can't hold up on its own. Now, here is the ultimate in Marxist evil. Quote, We don't take a position on any individual's personal empowerment in society. Therefore, she rejects individualism. What we look at is what is best collectively. If there is a woman of privilege in prostitution, does she reflect the best interest of all women in prostitution? And we would say, no, she doesn't. And she goes, I've been most annoyed recently listening to women who have PhDs and other privileges. Is that a privilege? Do you just get a PhD because you're privileged? <laughs> but what do you think she means by privileges? You know, I see. I don't know. You know something? That's, that's dropping words where she expects you to fill in these blanks to bolster her argument. Privilege. Oh, privilege. Okay, I've got an idea what privilege is. Well, you know how they've been using so, it in the past? Mm. White. Yes. Somebody white who's privilege. white and male. Or rich. White, yeah. educated, self-sufficient, yep. which accounts for the significance of indigenous. She has to separate those people. A lot of her argument is what we call the straw man argument, where, whereby if, if the argument is, should we have consensual sex for money in society? She would come up with this straw man, but what about violence? Well, of course, everybody's against violence. So therefore, we shouldn't have consensual sex in society. There's your straw man, yeah. the violence. And then she argues that, quote, it's very hard for many women to achieve a level of PhD, and many women have dreams and aspirations that they will never achieve because of their backgrounds and current circumstances. They're not choosing to be empowered by prostitution. They're making a decision to survive because they have no other choices in their lives. And there's that no choice theme constantly going over and over and over again. And what is she saying about women? I don't see this as complimentary to women. And then she says, boy, talk about socialism and Marxism. Imagine a society where we made our decisions about what to support or not based on a few, what, a few privileged people, and there's that word again, saying that it's something they enjoy. We just don't do that. We always look to those who suffer the most and try to make decisions that would best help them. In other words, spread the suffering around. Don't let any individuals ever aspire to anything better. This is not the description of a free society, what she's describing here. Yes, we do allow the, quote, privileged few to excel. We allow the geniuses and the Michelangelos and the Stephen Hawkings and whoever to excel. We don't hold them back because the rest of us are idiots. <laughs> you know, that's what she's arguing. And anyone who can say this about women, I think, is a women hater. I really do, Robert. 
I would go for, further, Bob. It's not simply women, I think, that people like Megan hate. I think it's life itself. Sex is a part of life. It's a, one of the most positive aspects of life. Money is about being rewarded for your efforts. It's all about life and sex, money, um, joy. She's trying to suck the joy out of life because she, and, and I want to stop picking on Megan personally and just say, Feminists of her ilk, Marxists of her ilk, have a death cult. They have a death wish. They hate life on this earth. Well, it, it is representative of the philosophy of the left. It is. She obviously has no respect for women as equals to men. Women not being equal to men is the essence of her whole Marxist plank. She has to, she has to have that. It's the whole playbook. And facts don't matter. This is a left-wing r- ranting, you know. In other things that she discussed with Andrew Lawton that we didn't play in our in our audio bites. She talked about women being in more danger indoors than outdoors because it's dangerous for women in all circumstances, whether they're indoors or outdoors. And, I'm, and then she threatened, she said, if we legalize prostitution, they'd have to deal with Healthcare Canada because <laughs> it would impose it on them. That's what she wanted to see done. And it's just funny that you would, that you would use a social benefit as a threat. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in the same sense that the liberals, when they legalize pot, it's becoming much more of a controlling environment. (laughs) Maybe she should advocate for the legalization of prostitution. It'll be much more strictly uh, hard to do. That was her (laughs) argument with the health care. Exactly. That's what she was saying. We'll come down on you like a ton of bureaucrats. (laughs) And she talked about these anti-prostitution laws, which we've already discussed on past episodes. But she's always talking about going after the Johns, you know, holding the men responsible. Well, why don't they go after the prostitutes? <laughs> Wouldn't that solve the problem a lot quicker? Oh, well, doesn't it harken back to her man-hatred? Well, yeah. It's all about the man. Isn't that what she said is first and foremost? It's the exactly. fact that it was a man. But then she says we try to hold abusers accountable for their behavior. Well, I haven't seen any evidence of that. I haven't seen any evidence of prosecuting anybody. And why, why is the woman not an abuser? I, I, I just see Megan Walker as being the exploiter here. Now, let me just point out that the alleged murderer in the case they were talking about, yes, who was a male, he was also already under police investigation for sexual assault and confinement. So they had this guy already out. Now, ask yourself this. Had the murdered sex worker had access to such a police file, which might have been available under legal prostitution where the police might actually warn sex workers about known predators, could be part of the system, wouldn't that go miles further than what Megan Walker and her abolitionists are proposing? It's, it's anti-sex from top to bottom. I wanted to requote Salim Mansour from last week's Just Right. Quote, Just as Freud pointed out, ultimately everything boils down to sex. The whole of life throughout history is ultimately about the primordial basic relationship between a male and a female. Out of that relationship comes great art, great music, great painting, and out of it also comes the dirtiest violence, misogyny, abuse, excesses. That's life. And there's that word that you said that she hated. That you, you, that you say you think she hates life, that it's a bigger hatred than just men. Interesting things that Salim was quite motivated by the comments of Camille Paglia. Camille Paglia had some very interesting things to say that we did not talk about last week and which speak to this issue. And I thought it was very interesting. She says, Young women are being taught that men have all the power and have used it throughout history to oppress women. Women don't seem to realize how much power they have to crush men. 
Strong women have always known how to control men. Oscar Wilde said women are complex and men are simple. Is it society or is it nature that is unjust? This was the big question that I proposed in Sexual Personae, which is her book, where I argued that our biggest oppressor is actually nature, not society. I continue to feel that my pro-sex wing of feminism, which does not see sexual imagery or men in general as the enemy, has the best and healthiest message for young women. Any thoughts on that, Robert? No, I, I, I'd, have, I'd have to pick up that book because I really like uh, Pallia. But mm. um, it's interesting that she said nature yeah. is the oppressor or nature is the problem that we have to solve. That's interesting. What did she, a lot what of she women, mean by that? A lot of women, maybe what they're doing is, is objecting to the fact that they have to bear the children and because of their sexuality. And nature imposed that on them. Nobody turned. Nobody made me male other than nature. I guess it's um, a retaliation against the fact that comes back to life again. Well, is that we are not equal physically, male and female. We just simply aren't. That's that's the facts of life. And unfortunately, you have people out there, transsexuals as they call them, who are denying uh, existence by you know saying a woman saying that I I am now a man, just simply rejecting reality. Oh, no. That's a whole. That's literally what that is. But in conclusion, I, I have to just quote this from Camille Paglia, quote, For ideological feminists to go on and on about how we cannot have women treated as sex objects is so naive and so uncultured. It shows a total incomprehension of the history of art, which flows into the great Hollywood movies and sex symbols of the 20th century. The whole history of art is about objectification. That's what an artwork is. It's an artifact, an object. Because of our advanced brains, it is the nature of human beings to make sex objects, objects of worship. Turning a person into a beautiful thing does not dehumanize her. <laughs> isn't, that a, isn't that a contrast to what Megan Walker's saying? And that, I can see, is what obviously Salim Mansour was relating to when he was expressing his views on sexuality, very much in, in sync with that. I would call that a healthy view of sex versus... Uh, the view that Megan Walker is, is espousing, it's, it's a very unhealthy view. Yes. Like I said before, a malevolent view of society yeah. and of the sexual act itself. Well, Megan Walker thinks she's the savior of women, and what she's really saving them is from men, and more women are beginning to object as well they should. Now, I want to thank regular listener and contributor to this show, Trevor D., who in response to last week's show with Salim Mansour about sex and the late Hugh Hefner's legacy, forwarded us a link of all things to Paul McKeever's documentary, wherein is cited a 1984 government committee, the Fraser Committee on Prostitution and Pornography, which I attended and addressed, and which Mark Emery, now known as the Prince of Pot, attended and addressed. And just listen to what Mark capped off in regards to his conclusions about feminist and sex. In 1984, Metz and Emery testified before the Fraser Committee on Prostitution and Pornography. Local feminists and religious groups, attempting to have erotic magazines banned from variety stores, trumped up false allegations that child pornography was being sold in such stores. With one simple economic incentive, Mark proved them to be lying. A London businessman offered $500 to anyone who could show him a store selling child porn. Nobody claimed the $500. Feminists and Christian people who are using this pornography hysteria, are using this child porn scare to cover the fact they are trying to ban, censor, and prohibit materials that basically they're just personally and politically opposed to. And what does it boil down to? They're indeed against sex and the enjoyment of representations of sex. 
when you people come to the West, in order for them to respect rights and freedom and property, they need to have come from a culture that already had to go through its own European enlightenment. To them, rights and freedom are incomprehensible. It's like plopping a caveman, you know, into the West and expecting yep. him to understand all of customs. The only people who should be allowed to immigrate to the West are people who come from cultures that already had the, the enlightenment or yep. some equivalent. Yeah. And everyone else should be blocked from coming well, to the West. Given that Russia never, yeah, given that Russia that. never had an enlightenment, I guess Ayn Rand shouldn't have been allowed into the West. Most Jews who came to the United States in the 19th century came from little shtetls. They knew nothing, never read Enlightenment figure. They didn't come from Enlightenment societies. I mean, it's absurd. It's it's deterministic. It has a low view of human nature. It's uh, rides and taxis in, in New York or Uber or whatever. And a lot, of, a lot of the drivers, for example, are blacks who've come over from Africa. I want to tell you, know about the values that America represents a hundred times better than many college students at Brown University. It also shows how deeply insecure these people. They're so afraid of the other. They're so afraid. They hold their own values at such low esteem that they think, oh my God, the barbarians are coming and we'll never be able to convince them. If you believed in your values, if you understood them, of course you could convince them. They're human beings. I, I've suggested that it should be easy to come into the country and hard to become a citizen hard to get the vote or they want to give they want to give professors at brown who are going to be consulted by the politicians the ability to write the entry exam into the united states i mean isn't it enough that they have the educational institutions already now you want to give them the power to define what america is and to use that on the borders i mean can you imagine who the obama administration would let in and who would they would exclude Our immigration policy is so stupid that we exclude from America people who would most bring value to our society, to all of us as individuals, there is no more important an idea than the separation of government from ideas. Government has no ideas. It's a blind that the Lady Justice holding the sword and the weights of justice, and she's got a blindfold on. She's about executing justice. That's what the government is. It's there to protect us. It has a very narrow realm of responsibilities, and the only philosophical issue it should be dealing with is defining objective laws. That's it. These guys, these so-called objectivists, are going to decide in the name of the government, and they think they will be the ones influencing the decision maker? Give me a break. Imagine if I suggested, in the name of liberty, kicking out all the people from America who don't agree with me on what liberty means. Why can't I kick them out? They are initiating force against me. This is the logic of, the, of these people, right? They're initiating force against me. They're taxing me. They're voting for Democrats who then tax me. Can't I, in self-defense, push them out of the country, kick them out? America is the land of the free, right? So if you don't believe in freedom, out you go. Who cares if you have citizenship? We'll, we'll revoke your citizenship. We can have a test that all Americans could qualify. What would happen then? You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to our financial supporters who make it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Be sure to visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts. 
all archived, not just for your listening enjoyment and convenience, but also as a record of our dedication, consistency, and principled approach to the discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. And I wonder if Mr. Yaron Brook, who's been a guest on this show, would agree with what we're having to say today on this issue, Robert. Well, I think that Yaron, being an objectivist and being a, a reasonable man, will certainly think that this debate that we're about to have is uh, done with the, with the best of intentions because uh, objectivists can disagree and disagree quite cordially, as he has done with uh, Leonard Peikoff. And I refer people back to the 2013 Leonard peikoff Iran brook debate over immigration and this very particular issue where Leonard Peikoff, the so-called heir of Ayn Rand objectivism, disagreed with Iran by saying that, no, you should not let any Muslims into the country and you should not let any Mexicans into the country illegally without the proper, without procedures. Where it seems that Iran is saying that you should have open immigration with, of course, the exceptions which are most self-evident, of course, um, criminal behavior, jihadists, um, infectious diseases, those kinds of things. But other than that, have a, an open border and make it difficult to vote, to quote him. Open That's an interesting distinction. Uh, yes, but let me put something in context here. Throughout Euron's podcast, by the way, what we just listened to was part of Euron Brook's podcast, and Euron Brook is the chairman of the board a new title for him, uh, of the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, in conversation or answering a question from uh, a caller by the name of Stuart who posted that video onto a Facebook uh, objectivist page that we've just played. And the context, I think, is an ideal society that Iran, myself, you, and a lot of objectivists are trying to work towards versus the reality of today. Ideally, if we were given a truly capitalist society which upheld justice, I would take Iran's arguments for a, a much more liberal immigration policy and uh, agree with it uh, almost totally. And I'll come up to my one exception soon. It has to do with Paul McKeever. But unfortunately, we don't have such a world today. We have the United States, in particular, is just another welfare state socialist uh, mob rule country like every other Western country in the world. We all have our problems uh, as a socialist nation, letting in people who are coming in simply to uh, abuse the system. They're not coming here like they did pre-FDR, pre-1945, to work, to ex escape oppression, as much as they're, as they're coming into the West to um, for their free houses, their free money, their free cars, their free bus passes. So, so are you we saying... have to watch the language here. We have our, Let me preface something here. We have to watch our language in that... There's always qualifiers. To almost everything I'm about to say, there are qualifiers. And I go back to an old show that we did where I said that the problem that we're having is with teachers. And, of course, we get an email saying that I know a teacher and she's the best and she's an objectivist. And yes, yes, yes. There are qualifiers. When I say teachers, I don't mean all teachers. Absolutely every single teacher in the world, everywhere, at all time. 
And just as I have to qualify that statement, I have to qualify that, yes, there are immigrants who are escaping oppression legitimately, who want to come here not for the dole, but to work hard and succeed and be part of our culture, uh, the Western culture of freedom and democracy and capitalism. Yes, however, we're talking about percentages, we're talking about degrees, we're talking about the reality of today. The reality of today is that we're seeing a major influx of immigrants who are simply trying to use the system and abuse our goodwill, abuse our benevolence as a free, a, a somewhat free society. Now, the society and the government that Iran is saying that under an ideal system should be easy to immigrate, hard to vote. But you know something? You get people coming in like that um, thug who that loser, using Trump's words, that, that low life, that scum of the earth who ran over eight people in New York a few weeks ago, who come into the country legally and to do mayhem, to do harm, based on his ideology, his religious beliefs, his political ideology. And that is the exception that I would put to Iran Who's, who later on says, and in, in, in threads uh, following that discussion, have said that, no, you can't stop people from coming in because of their religious belief, because of their ideology, specifically because they're Muslim. Now, Paul McKeever took exception to Iran's um, podcast and basically said that, quote, Iran is not giving sufficient recognition to the influence of faith and religion. And he says, Paul says that if you could reason with religious people, there wouldn't be any religious people. <laughs> and that's, that, that's not his quote, but he's, he's, he's uh, using it uh, to reference the fact that something Iran was saying in this discussion and other commenters in the Facebook page of objectivism saying that once people come into an American society, they will be converted to freedom. They will be converted to democracy. They will understand the pleasures of capitalism and become advocates of it, if not simply neutral to it. When Paul McKeever is essentially saying that the influence of faith and religion is so hard to overturn, especially after one, and this is my editorializing here, especially after one has passed the age of majority or at least 25 years old, that to let a, for example, um, Afghani Muslim into the country uh, 30 years old or more is basically saying that you're letting someone into the country who is, by their own admission, antithetical in ideology to the Western society, who is out to destroy Western society, who is out to convert us rather than have us convert him into freedom. He is out to converse us into worshiping his God at his on his terms. Now, Iran, actually in a personal discussion I had with him myself when he came to Toronto, has said that when I asked him, why do you concentrate on university students? Why are you giving all your lectures to university students? He says, because after the age of 25, it's, it's basically useless. People are calcified in their thinking after the age of about 25-ish. Yeah, right? or really they they pretty well at that point, maybe not been calcified, but have made up their minds on where, how they think about life based on their experiences up to that point. Exactly, yeah. And so to, so to dislodge that, there has to be some kind of a major event or insight or, you know, 
anything like that that would actually change your mind. But you cannot change other people's minds. That's for them to change. Exactly. And happened to me when I was in my 30s. So it's not like I was totally calcified in my 20s. <laughs> no, and, and, and again, we're talking about um, the whole grammar Nazi thing here. When you got one person chime in, uh, Avneet, he chimes in saying, hey, I'm a, uh, an immigrant, I was a religious, and I changed my mind. Right. Yeah, right, you know something, it goes back to the qualifiers. Yes, you will always find outliers. You will always find people who do change their minds after the age of 25 or 30 or whatever, even 50, 60, 70. Mm-hmm. People have free will, people have choice. This is harkening back to what Yaron said, that the view that people cannot change their point of view after a certain age or whatever, or, or if they're brought up in a society who have not undergone an enlightenment, is deterministic. It, and by deterministic, he means that people who do not have free will. Their course of life is determined by their upbringing, their environment, their culture, their religion, their ideology. I would disagree with that. Of course, we're, to be against immigration from uh, these countries that have societies which are antithetical to to freedom doesn't necessarily mean that it's deterministic that they will be adherents to that kind of a left-wing viewpoint. However, if you look at things on the whole, through percentages, let's say if only 1% of Afghani Muslims were, were uh, jihadists, and you uh, immigrate into the United States, and let's say you let in 100,000, 1% of 100,000, there's still a lot of people out there who want to kill you for their belief, and it turns out that 1% is extremely low. The actual percentages of, for example, American Muslims. Now, American Muslims, according to the Pew Research Center, has, uh, in a survey they did, and I think it was in 2011, has said that 19% of American Muslims, not Syrian Muslims, not Afghani or Pakistani Muslims, but American Muslims, find some value in killing yourself, wearing a suicide vest and creating terrorist acts with a suicide vest. 19%. And there's over 3 million Muslims in the United States. So you still have over half a million American Muslims who cheer and shout hurrah when they see the 9-11, the buildings come down the two towers in 9-11, who cheer and shout hurrah when they see somebody blow themselves up in a vest in a market. 19%. So therefore, given the percentages, and we got kicked off a CHRW for what am I about to say, given the percentages, you shouldn't let any of them in because you cannot determine Without who proper the, vetting. Without proper vetting. Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? I think it's up to an Afghani Muslim, a Pakistani Muslim, a Syrian Muslim to prove to the immigration officials that, look, I've done this, I've read this, I've, I've written this, I believe in freedom, I'm coming to your country because I want a better life, because this is what I've done to prove that. Okay? But if they come and saying, oh yes, I'm a Wahhabi Muslim, and um, I believe, of course, in the Wahhabist sect of um, Islam. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, no admittance. Here's something that Paul McKeever was saying, and I quote, um, If one's goal is to defend freedom in one's country, one cannot afford not to play both offense, meaning education, and defense, meaning preventing pro-theocratic individuals from being given the power of the vote. And I would have to agree with him. When you let people into the country, it's not simply the fear that they might vote um, for a theocratic 
candidate or a Marxist candidate to more align themselves with their culture. Voting is only one simple part of living in a country, a resident of the country. You don't even have to be a citizen, but you can go out there and you can protest. You can go out there and you can cause mayhem and violence and uh, run down political cyclists. parties, contribute yep. to political parties. Give you don't money. have to be a citizen. Yep. The vote, psh, that's one in millions. You know, as important as it is, it's certainly not uh, the most important thing the person can do to change society for the good or for the better, or, or for the worse, rather. So that argument of having open borders but being hard to become a citizen or hard to vote, I think it doesn't wash. I don't think it's uh, the reality of the situation. The reality is that you can let people in illegally, illegally, whatever, and you will still find mayhem on your streets from a a particular kind of immigrant who, who believes that the West is evil and should be destroyed. And we're letting them in by the hundreds of thousands, even in this country. Trudeau just upped the number of immigrants over the next few years so that in three years' time you would have a million immigrants coming into Canada. And unfortunately, a lot of that uh, that immigration is not from what I would call uh, peaceful, uh, freedom-loving countries, but are from those areas of the world which are, as I say, which hold a philosophy antithetical to freedom and capitalism. Good morning, Monsieur Lapidite. I am Colonel Hans Lander of the SS. I was hoping you could invite me inside your home and we could have a discussion. Uh, of course, please come in. Now, as you may have heard, I am in charge of rounding up all the Jews in this village. Yes, I have heard that. Are you aware of any Jews hiding in the area? No. No, I, I assure you there haven't been no Jews in this village. There haven't been no Jews, so there have been some Jews. Oh, uh, sorry, no, I meant uh, there haven't been any Jews, no Jews here. <laughs> sorry, I was confused by a double negative. You see, grammar is very important to the Nazi party. Now, are you familiar with one Shoshana Dreyfus? Yes, I know her. Me and her buy our milk at the same market. Me and her? Surely you meant to say she and I, no? Yes, of course. The trick is to take the other person out of the sentence to see if it makes sense. Me buy milk? I think not. I buy milk, you see? I swear I do not know where Mademoiselle Dreyfus is at. Did you just end a sentence with a preposition? Give me Colonel. When was the last time you saw the Jew Dreyfus? About a month ago, I was walking by the river Payon and I saw Dreyfus fishing, so I went down to the river bank to see if it was her, but I couldn't get a good view. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you really think I was so stupid I wouldn't recognize a run-on sentence? Sorry, there was no Jews here. Jew or Jews, plural? Plural. 
Wrong. You have to match your subject with your verb. What do you want from me? I've heard from numerous sources you are hiding Mademoiselle Dreyfus. From who? From whom? Don't kill me. Please. You know, part of looking at the back and forth on Facebook comments regarding the immigration debate between Iran and Paul McKeever was to look at all of the logical fallacies that everybody seemed to be guilty of. I couldn't fault Paul, of course, for his, because uh, he's a lawyer and he knows the <laughs> the weight of words. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I, I have to admit, even Iran has... Uh, has argued from uh, possibly the argument of intimidation. He has his own straw men arguments. and You think he violated the law of identity by even still assuming that the United States is a free country? And that uh, we're letting people yes. into a free country? I call that almost context dropping. The context is the reality of today. And so to say that we should have open immigration, effectively open immigration, because it's the way we should be, is denying the way we are today. We aren't a free country. The United States isn't a free country. Canada's not a free country from the ideal that we espouse. But I, I, I had to get a kick out of the use of the terms and the logical fallacies and the context dropping, the straw man arguments, um, the ad hominem attacks. I saw one recently between two objectivists and it ended up calling the other guy inbred type of thing. <laughs> and it just goes on and on. Um, I think we're all a bit of a grammar Nazi. I'm, I'm really bad at really bad at myself. Uh, yeah, you are. Especially when you, Bob <laughs> oh, Metz, God. says something like, I could care less. When you meant, of course, I could not care less. That just that just sticks in my craw, Mr. Metz, but I'm done. <laughs> well, I could care less. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, in, in today's world where everybody's picking on everybody else and Facebook, Twitter, the whole social media platform is replete, rife with people who are afraid, actually. I have my uh, sister-in-law afraid to go onto Facebook because somebody might pick on a word that she inappropriately used or a phrase that she inappropriately meant when she meant something else. And People don't want to get into that intellectual back and forth, that grammar Nazi bashing. You know, don't you mean this when you said this? Or Well, isn't every political argument and debate about definitions? Oh, yes. It's all epistemology. It's all about words, context, uh, concepts. Right and left. Why is it so important to label somebody right or left? The left insists on anyone they disagree with. That's the biggest problem we have out there, our political labels left and right. But... I thrive on it. I, I really do. I, I sort of enjoy the banter back and forth. But don't you find that it's difficult to have a proper intellectual conversation or discussion or debate when you don't have the time to put together your thoughts and present them in an appropriate way? I think that the most appropriate way for a good political positioning of one's thoughts is in a, either a, a paper, in a political journal, or a newspaper, a reputable one, or in a book. Because nobody can then say that after writing a book on a topic that you didn't have time to research something, that you meant this when you wrote that, because you had years to put that into practice when you're well, writing a book. That's the kind book. of thing only really 
devoted people and philosophers would go around doing, not the average person who's just tuning in to something and is reacting to it. Exactly. That's actually my point, is that when you get into these things, and, and I think that Duran Brooke is actually courting danger. Maybe we're courting danger here. When we have a podcast, when we have a radio show and we're talking off the top of our heads and we don't have all the facts in front of us, although we, we do try. Aren't you defining the problem with mainstream media right now? Because, oh, yes, let's indeed. face it, I have always held some sympathy for the mainstream media, even though there's a lot of fake news coming out of them and a lot of wrong news. But that's because... They are the mainstream media. They're usually live. We're talking about reacting to something that's happening now about which they still don't have facts, so they have to fill airtime or lineage in the newspaper with speculation and other things. And, and they are the frontline people who get the first news and then try and react to it. Now, lately, it's been the opposite. What's obvious, they try to almost avoid saying. You're right on, and I think it's a great observation. Just harken back to the days in Canada here, we had two channels. Before Global, there was CBC and uh, CTV on the television. And in the United States, you had three, ABC, NBC, and CBS. And I would say every second of airtime back in the 50s, 60s was scripted, was researched, was vetted before a person opened their mouth. Oh, yeah. What do we have today? We have people sitting down on stools with the uh, street scene behind them, uh, people like actors and actresses and musicians and, uh, in other words, not professional journalists, not professionals uh, in a particular area, but uh, the popular people sitting down pontificating about the president's policies. Uh, it's not to say that they don't have the right to, the, to express their opinion. I'm just saying that the mainstream media today are talking off the top of their heads, talking uh, with emotion rather than reason in many cases. And I think the debate suffers. And I think society as a whole, if you want to call it that, suffers. Individuals suffer. And the whole political process um, is not necessarily better for the way that media have become. Uh, over the past few decades. Again, so I kind of have a bit of sympathy for uh, the people who are reacting to, to news items and uh, the terrorist actions and things that happen as they are happening. That's a tough call. It's a, it is, and I, and I agree with you. There's sympathy there, there's empathy, because I can easily put myself in that shoe, in, in their position. And as a matter of fact, even on this show, we've, uh, we sometimes record the show uh, many days in advance of a particular event, and we have to change things when an event happens the morning that we want to sit down and record the show, and here we are scrambling to try to get information for it, and we both go look at each other and go, no, let's just wait for the dust to settle so that we can get our facts straight and make sure that we're not recording nonsense. Well, that's because we want to get it just right. Just right. Please don't accuse me of uh, you know, saying that we could care less. <laughs> I don't think we do. I think we care more. And that's why we keep coming back week after week. And be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. 
Okay. Um, pornographic fairy tales other than Jack and Jill and Steve the Pizza Delivery Man. $50 question. Known for its glass slipper, what fairy tale has been told in a record 95 film productions ranging from ballets to pornos? Houston. Cinderella? Yes, yeah, Cinderella. Yeah.